0: Hello, I'm Sam Amon, and this is the third episode of the Art of Asymmetrical Warfare podcast. Today we'll be discussing part one of the Anglo-Irish War. Irish War is too big a conflict for one podcast. So I've decided to split up into a number of episodes. Today, we will be focusing on the time period between 1917 and 1918, because then we can see how Sinn Féin and the Irish Volunteers, who will later turn into the IRA, rebuilt themselves after Easter Raising. We'll see a number of crises that were mismanaged by the British and the IPP, the Irish Parliamentary Party, um, that would prepare Ireland for the I- Anglo-Irish Civil War. Last time we talked, um, we talked about Easter Rising and how the British executed the signers of the, I- the proclamation of the Irish Republic and a number of unit commanders. And then the Asquith administration realized they were shooting themselves in the foot with the executions, so then they moved to mass incarceration of all all participants of Easter Rising many members of Sinn Féin and anyone they thought who could be a member of Sinn Féin. Because as we all know, mass incarceration solves everything. As could be predicted, mass incarceration only hurt the British cause. The Irish have a long history of using the prison system to network and recruit and to plan for future uprisings and future acts of rebellion. The historian Charles Townshend also makes an interesting argument in his book, The Republic, The War for Irish Independence, that prison life introduced future IRA men to military routine, such as guard duties, um, inspections, military discipline, and implement during the anglo irish War. There are two men in particular who came out of the prison network um, stronger than when they entered, um, and they are Michael Collins and Eamon de Valera. So Michael Collins was sent to one of the most famous prisons, Vrondoc. Vrondoc was a cold, damp, rat-infested prison in Wales, and it included men such as Collins, Richard Mulcahy, Dick McKee, Terence Matsweeney, Thomas McCurtin, and Sean Hales, um, and they would all be prominent IRA men in the future. Collins took control of the prison rather quickly, And he would organize daylight football games, the daylight language courses, as well as mass demonstrations to improve prison conditions. He also became the spokesman for the group of prisoners, and he would uh, deal directly with the wardens and prisoner officials to make sure their demands were met. He enters the prison as a nobody. He fought during Easter Rising, but he didn't have a position of importance. But he leaves the prison as a man um, who is known for organizing, who can be a bit of a bully at times, but who takes care of his men. And he's also left the prison with a good idea of who he wants to fight with in the upcoming conflict. He was starting to recreate the IRB while in jail, and then when he leaves, he continues those efforts. While Collins was in Frondock, Eamon de Valera starts his prison term in Dartmoor Prison, which is in England. And the first thing he does to get attention from the other prisoners is that Ewan McNeil, the man who ordered the counter-order, which ruined the original plans for Easter Rising, was also brought to Dartmoor. They were in the yard, and De Valera calls his men to attention, and he tells them to uh, to salute McNeil as the as leader of the Irish Volunteers. And they do, and you know, no one really gives McNeil too much trouble. And so then he, and De Valera starts to negotiate with prison wardens like Collins about improving conditions, but the prison wardens are a little bit more stubborn with De Valera. And so they threaten. I think they put him in solitary confinement, and then he threatens to go on strike. And then the other men who are in the prison also threaten to go on strike. And the British don't know what to do with him, so they transfer him to a different prison, <laughs> in Maidstone, where he does uh, he does similar things. And then they they transfer him one more time to lose before he's released. And so uh, De Valera entered prison, not super famous, but he was the last one to surrender during Easter Rising. He had been marked for execution and was spared at the last minute because the Asquith government realized we'd have to stop killing people. It's not helping our cause. Then De Valera stands up for men in the prison. And so when he leaves prison, he is maybe the most prominent survivor, one of the most prominent survivors of Easter Rising. The men are in prison from about April 1916 to December 1916 when they're finally released. And um, one of the reasons why they're released is because the British are sensing that tensions are still high in Ireland. Um, John Redmond and the IPP, the Irish Party, has been petitioning the British government to release these men. And also, I think, I think Lloyd George is the Prime Minister at this point. And he wants to have a convention for the Unionists and the Nationalists to sit down and talk to each other about Home Rule, which is supposed to be implemented relatively soon. So he wants conditions in Ireland to be better than they are. So he decides to release the prisoners. And Redmond also wants to use the convention as a last you know, last attempt to save his own political party and to save Home Rule, but uh, Sinn Féin doesn't want to take part of it, the Unionists don't want to take part of it, so it all collapses. When the prisoners are released, they are greeted by cheering crowds, which is the exact opposite of what happened when they were arrested. When Initially, when they were arrested, the rest of Ireland thought that they were crazy, and, you know, Dublin had been burnt down to a crisp, and there was nothing good that came out of it. So when they're released, the crowds are a little bit more happy to see them, and the prisoners themselves are still... Very committed to their cause. They are ready to start again. Prison did not seem to have phased them at all. And they are ready to to continue the networking that they started in prison and lay the groundwork for the Anglo-Irish War. 1917 and 1918 are transformative years for, for Ireland. You still have the IPP, the Irish Parliamentary Party, which still has some seats in, in British Parliament and they still are the powerhouse of, you know, the political powerhouse of Ireland. But Sinn Féin is quickly catching up with them. And Sinn Féin uses 1917 to 1918 to build a massive countrywide network of campaigners and supporters to help them win the the general election in 1918. And it's the same thing with the Irish Volunteers. The Irish Volunteers is this weird hodgepodge of Sinn Féiners, of IRB men, of Irish Volunteer men, of people who used to be part of Irish, Irish Citizen Army. It's a hodgepodge of things. But um, the main difference between Sinn Féin and the Irish Volunteers or IRB is that IRB is dedicated to militant violence in order to achieve a republic, whereas Sinn Féin is a more um, parliamentary approach. So even though they are also different from IPP, they still believe in using elections and the will of the people to win independence, whereas the IRB are more ready for an uprising. And then you also have, like I said, you have the unions. So like the Irish Citizen Army, the Irish Trade Workers Union. And then you have in Taliban is the militant female auxiliary group, because you also have a bunch of linter female groups um, forming at this time. So Ireland is in a you know a moment of great change, and we're going to discuss a little bit how the different groups um either took advantage of this moment or who or how they faltered and lost momentum. So we'll start with uh, with Sinn Fein first. Sinn Fein was a political party that was created by Arthur Griffith as a response to the IPP. And they had two main platforms. Um, one was an independent Ireland, whether that would be through a republic, through a dual monarchy, through straight out independence, was very vague and was vague on purpose. And then the other pillar... Was uh, parliamentary absenteeism, which meant that even if they won seats, they would not sit in a British parliament because they believed that uh, the British government was illegitimate in Ireland. And so Sinn Féin benefits from its vagueness because it allows people to project what they want on Sinn Féin a little bit. Sinn Féin capitalizes on being a new party that emerged out of World War I, that emerged out of Easter Rising at this point, because even though Sinn Féin had existed before Easter Rising, the British funny enough, remarketed it and repackaged it as the party of Easter Rising. So Easter Rising was a Sinn Féin rebellion, and that's one of the reasons why they arrest a lot of Sinn Féin members in, in April 1916. So Sinn Féin, through their own efforts and through the British efforts, has this reputation of being the revolutionary party, of being the party that's against everything that has happened so far. So they're anti-war. Later there'll be anti-conscription, which we'll talk about a little bit later in the episode. They are anti-British imperialism. And so a lot of people who who are grieving because of the war, because of the rising, or because of the food shortages, they look to Sinn Féin. So uh, Sinn Féin decides to run, three or four people during the 1917 elections. And one of those people is Count George Plunkett, who is the father of the rising martyr uh, Joseph Plunkett. And they also run Eamon de Valera. I think de Valera runs in East Clare. And I think he Hates John Redmond's seat. Uh, So Plunkett and De Valera win, and that's the first political victory for Sinn Fein. And they were able to utilize a lot of the uh, survivors from Easter Rising to campaign for them. And one of those men who campaigned uh, for De Valera was Thomas Ashe. Thomas Ashe was born to a family steeped in Gaelic culture. He was a proficient football player, he was a Gaelic speaker. He started off as being a teacher before he got swept up in cause for Ireland. He joined the IRB and then the Irish Volunteers. As we talked about last week, Thomas Ashe was leader of the Findal Brigade, and along with Richard Mulcahy, he led his brigade to victory at the Battle of Ashbourne, which is a small skirmish on the outskirts of Dublin during Easter Rising. He was held in Lewes prison after Easter Rising, which maybe he met. De Valera. At one point, he was also organizing prison prisoners in the prison. When he was released, he was considered to be like one of the rising stars of the uh, the Irish cause, and uh, he became leader or president of the IRB. And he was helping rebuild the IRB. And he went on a speaking tour for De Valera and Joe McGuinness who was another candidate that Sinn Fein ran. He was giving one of his speeches in August 1917, and he was he was arrested in charge of sedition. He and a number of other Sinn Feiners uh were held were taken to Montjoy prison. Um after he was arrested, Thomas Ashe refused to accept his status as a criminal. He was charged with criminal status. Um he argued that he was a political prisoner, that he had broken no law. He and other prisoners um wanted to be treated like political prisoners. Um, the request was refused and so he and the other prisoners they started breaking items in their jail cells in protest. They uh you know they resisted resisted the wardens and prison officials. They just made a nuisance of themselves basically. And the British still refused to give in to their demands. So then they decided to go on hunger strike on September 20th, 1917. The prison officials didn't really know how to handle this. Still, I don't know if anyone still knows how to handle hunger strikers. But back in 1917, they really didn't know how to handle it. So they try to force feed him. And they do a very, very poor job. And he starts to get sick and have an adverse effect to the force feeding. And then uh, so they, they started to force feed him on September 23rd. He dies from complications from force feeding on September 25th, 1917, um, which was a huge blow to the Irish cause. But men like Collins and Richard Mulcahy were able to turn his funeral into a huge demonstration of Sinn Féin, but also Irish volunteer power. And so uh, Richard Mulcahy is charge of organizing his funeral, and he turns it into a massive demonstration. He actually leads a small city hall to collect ashes, cast it, and carry it to Niven Cemetery, which could have turned into a firefight if the British had decided to stop them. And then when it gets to the cemetery, you know, they lay the casket down, and there's a three-volley salute, uh, which is followed by the last post, and then Collins gives a very brief speech, and he says, there will be no oration... No Nothing remains to be said, for the valley which has been fired is the only speech proper to make above the grave of a dead Fenian. It's also one of the many moments that we see where the Irish Volunteers and Sinn Féin are either working together or their interests are aligned. Um, Because at this point, I think Sinn Féin is still a little wary of the Irish Volunteers. There is a lot of cross-pollinization amongst the different groups and eventually I think by 1918 you can say that Sinn Féin and the Irish Volunteers are one and the same. Um, on October 26, 1917, Sinn Féin hold their first national convention which is actually the same day that the Irish Volunteers slash IRB hold their own convention. During the Sinn-, Sinn Féin convention Arthur Griffith, who had created Sinn Féin um, is replaced by Éamon de Valera as president. The party dedicates itself to Irish independence with the promise that after independence was achieved, the Irish people would elect its own form of government. Like I said, uh, Sinn Féin has a very vague Platform in a lot of ways, and it works for them at this period. But it does become a problem later because they don't really expand on it. And we'll talk a little bit when we talk about the Irish Civil War and the Treaty. We'll talk about how that that hurt the cause in, in the long run. You also have this tension within Sinn Féin between those who still believe in passive nonviolence and what are known as the militant sixteeners, so the people who took part in 1916. You have people like Griffith and Michael Flanagan and Daryl Fidyas who still believe in nonviolence, and they believe that the best way to achieve independence is to not risk the British anchor and invasion. Whereas people like, I think it's hard to say if de Valera was completely ready for you know a whole uprising, but he is definitely more militant within Sinn Féin. Broda and Constance are definitely you know some of the more extreme members of Sinn Féin at this point who are ready for an uprising. And we'll talk about the, the 1918 election a little later, but by 1918 it's very clear that the more militant people of Sinn Féin have won out, and the non-violent people have been pushed out or they've been quieted. And one of the reasons why that happened is you have the baddage that comes from a world war and this rise in nationalism, but also you have a lot of young disenfranchised men within Ireland who are unemployed, who um, get swept up in nationalist rhetoric and in the independence movement. And it's the young blood that really keeps both Sinn Féin and the Irish volunteers existing maybe longer than they would have if this had just been a regular (laughs) period in time. I want to talk briefly about Comnebain and also Labour, because they are two groups that had a prominent role in Easter Rising and who get railroaded a little bit, I think, by both Sinn Féin and the Irish volunteers, both in terms of 1917-1918, but also historically. Com Nibon was an all-female auxiliary group that was um, militant and dedicated to Irish independence through violence. And you had famous members like Constance Makievich, Kathleen Clark, I think Hannah Sheehy Steffington was a member as well. And they, during this period, I think, is where you see the highest, the high point for Com Nibon. They take the cause of Irish independence and they they wholeheartedly believe in it. They embrace the proclamation of the Irish Republic that Pierce read during Easter Rising. They are some of the, you know, the strongest campaigners for Sinn Féin. They, um, we'll talk a little bit later in the episode. But when anti-conscription becomes a platform of Sinn Féin, they are the ones who enforce it. They kind of they, they lead, you know, the, the trailblazers for the boycott of the police. And then they, during the 1918 election, women can vote for the first time in the UK. We'll talk again a little bit about that impact on the election. And because they are militant, they um, work very closely with the Irish Volunteers units. And so it's this really weird thing where like you'll have a Sinn Féin club. And then next to Sinn Féin Club, you'll have like an Irish volunteer unit, and then you'll have a Tom Nabon unit, and it's all within the same, you know, county or city. And even though they're not like officially aligned at this point, I think, they are all working very closely with each other. So Tom de bon will volunteer, will, you know, campaign for Sinn Féin, and the member of a Sinn Féin, the candidate for Sinn Féin is probably a member of that Irish volunteer unit in that area. And so it's this, like I was saying, this cross-pollination that I think gives Sinn Féin the, the backing, the political backing it needs to challenge the Irish Parliamentary Party because, you know, a vote for Sinn Féin is a vote against the Irish Parliamentary Party. Redmond actually dies early. John Redmond dies in March 1918, and that is a further blow to the IPP, um, and they lose further and further ground, and as they're losing ground, these other groups come up and, and take over. So, Cumann de Bolland is a really strong force behind that rise of, of Sinn Féin, but they do peak in 1919, and then membership drops, and then it pits up again in 1920, but at that point, they're swallowed by Sinn Féin and the Irish Volunteers, and so by the time you have the anti-treaty, they've lost a lot of potency as a political group. And it's very similar um, with labor, actually. The labor movement is very strong in 1917 and 1918 in terms of membership and membership actions. There's, I think there's like three or four strikes um, in Ireland at the time. They're, um, they do recreate themselves after they lose Connolly during 1916. I think the Irish Citizen Army is dead and it recreates itself as the Irish Trade Workers Union. And um, that's led by Jim Larkin at this point. And they do run during the election, but there's a lot of infighting and they're not as strong as they once were, and they need time to rebuild, just like Sinn Féin needed time to rebuild. And Sinn Féin just rebuilds a little bit faster than labor does. And so during the 1918 election, which we'll talk about later, like I keep saying, um, during the 1918 election, they don't do as well, and they have to give a lot of ground to Sinn Féin. And then finally, that leaves us with the Irish volunteers, who I think come out of Easter Rising and come out of the prison experience as strong as Sinn Féin does. While Sinn Féin was rebuilding itself, the Irish volunteers were, uh, were also being resurrected from the ashes. It's kind of like this... I think it's this this dual approach where you have people like Collins and Mulcahy and Broda, who are trying to create a, a general headquarters, basically. Um, and they're being pushed, while they're pushing for local initiatives, they're also being pushed by local initiatives, by like Ernest Blythe and A1O and Sean Chisi. Who are, create, who are recreating the smaller groups throughout the country. And so you have this really weird kind of situation where the I or volunteers are being recreated on a local level, and then at some point they make contact with this nebulous general headquarters thing, then then general headquarters tries to reestablish its authority on the local level, but general headquarters does not have the capabilities to be constantly in touch with the local initiatives or the local organizations and so you have this really weird balance of local organizations having to um, recognize the authority of general headquarters and then general headquarters giving orders but also knowing that local initiatives going to trump anything that general headquarters is going to send send down the pike so so while your local units were rebuilding themselves collins was trying to use the irb network to form a strict core of officers as well as a great a growing source of, of personal power and i think there's a lot of debate to be had about how much of it was Machiavellian. Um, especially 1917, and 1918, and how much of it just, it made sense from a pragmatic perspective, like one of the reasons why did Easter Rising fail, right? Easter Rising failed because of X, Y, and Z. How do we solve X, Y, and Z? Well, one thing that can help us solve that is probably having a general headquarters that knows what it's doing, right? Who are the men that I think know what they're doing? Well, you know, it's ABC. It's, uh, it's Mulcahy, it's O'Sullivan, it's you know, members of the squad. So part, part of it, I think, is just a pragmatic reaction to what Collins perceived as going wrong in Easter Rising as well as a sense of, I'm, I'm a leader at this period of time, and I know who I want to work with, and they like working with me, and so we're going to create a core that way. However, one of the issues with that approach is that they're using the IRB, and the IRB like we talked in the last episode is a secret oath-bound society, and they are dedicated to um, independence through violent means. And so there are men like Eamon de Valera and Kafel Broder um, and I think Austin's facts at this point were distrustful of the IRB. Again, whether that is because it's a weird, you know, oath found secret society that was created in the 1840s and, you know, is shrouded in mystery, or is it because they sense that it is a source of political power for Collins? Like, it's kind of hard to tell, um, and I don't think that really comes to play in 1917. It's going to come to play later in the war, but it starts here, because Collins needs a foundation to create officers around, so why not use the IRB, especially since you have a lot of men in ireland who are now getting groups of men together and we're giving them weapons we need to be able to control them somehow before this spirals out of control but it's one of those things that starts now that seems like a good idea at the time and then later becomes a huge problem for the irish nationalists later on during the conflict and it's funny enough too because like De Valera and and broda took an oath to the irb when they took part in the part in the rising because the IRB were the people who planned the Rising, but as soon as the Rising was over um, and they're released from prison, they renounced their oath. So GHQ, which I think at this point Richard Mulcahy is Chief of Staff, he's trying to establish order on these local groups. One of the orders is that uh, local groups should only listen to orders that are issued by the local executive. And so this order is to try and prevent another counter-order fiasco. And then another order is that volunteers will only be sent to the field if commanders believe that there's a a good chance of victory so you're not going to have this martyrdom martyrdom is not going to become an official policy of of the the new version of the irish volunteers Mulcahy works really hard to instill a military spirit and discipline into the volunteers while also coping with the reality that their most effective unit at the moment is a company and only if the local leaders are efficient at what they're doing the companies later in the conflict they will grow into battalions and brigades but you're still going to have the same problem that the tactics remain local and territorial, and the leaders remain local leaders, and you know, GHQ is going to try really, really hard to enforce discipline and efficiency, um, but he's, they're never going to be as successful as Mokay would want them to be. Or maybe as well as they need to be, too. We will discuss, um, we're going to discuss the formation of the IRA, um, their hierarchical structure, and the tactics that they use later in episode, and so we can discuss more some of the failings that happened. Um, but the key point, I think, is that, well, GHQ is trying to make the Irish volunteers believe that they are a regular army, and that they expect the volunteers to, res- to respect their officers and GHQ, but also allow for local initiative and improvisation, as well as trust the local executives to control their soldiers. And this is, it's a difficult balancing act that GHQ, and, and Mulcahy in particular, will struggle to maintain during the entire Anglo-Irish War, into the Irish Civil War as well, and then even into the formation of the Free Irish State. And another thing that the Irish Volunteers were doing is that they were using things like the Gaelic League and volunteering for Sinn Féin um, to also reorganize all Irish Volunteers and to make contact with local commanders and there's a good story in, in one of the biographies I was reading about Mulcahy about him riding, all, you know, on his bike, riding all over Ireland, fundraising for the Gaelic League I'm in Cork and Kerry. But really, he's he's trying to reach out to commanders and just figure out like what is out there at this point <laughs> in, in terms of the Irish Volunteers. And then you also have this argument too, where how how visible do we want the Irish Volunteers to be at this point? And so there are people like um, Paddy Breenan, who say, you know, we should be out there drilling. The British should see us. The people should see us. We should be. It should be very clear that we haven't given up. That we are preparing for another rising. And then there's some argument like, well, no, let's not risk engagement at this point. Let's not get into trouble when we don't have to. Let's really focus on. The important things like getting weapons because at this point they don't really have any um so (laughs) how are you going to solve that problem how are you going to fight the british if you don't have arms and so some enterprising volunteers they actually buy weapons from the irc the the royal Irish constables which is the police force in ireland at the time and and the british soldiers that are in ireland that's not a very efficient way of doing it what happens is that Britain passes this conscription bill, which we'll talk about a little bit later, but what basically happens is that the Irish Volunteers use the struggle against conscription as an excuse to go throughout the local towns and, and collect all the arms, basically. But they will always be short of arms. It's something that is, always a struggle, that is always going to be an issue for the Irish Volunteers, and then as they turn to the IRA, the IRA. So the same time that Sinn Féin has a convention in October, the Irish Volunteers also have a convention, and um, it is within that convention that they, they form a new Supreme Council, and um, on that council, so de Valera is voted as president, Rourga as chairman of the executive, um, with Collins as director of organization. And then Mulcahy starts off as director of training and at some point he becomes chief of staff. And then another famous um, IRA man, Liam Lynch, becomes director of communications. And so what we see here is that we see a militant force that is trying very, very hard to make itself into a legitimate army. And that will continue into 1918 and then into 1919. We talked a little about how Sinn Féin and the Irish Volunteers rebuilt themselves, but they didn't rebuild themselves in a vacuum. There were a number of crises that occurred between 1917 and 1918 that they took advantage of to help them rise to prominence. One of these crises was the food shortage that occurred during the winter of 1917 and 1918. The food shortage was created because food was being exported to Britain, evoking memories of the Irish potato famine uh, to help with the war effort. Sinn Féin couldn't prevent all food from being exported, but they held demonstrations and found creative ways to keep the food in Ireland. For example, Dermon Lynch took 30 pigs meant for exportation and killed them, giving the meat to the hard-hit families. It earned him deportation to America, but won prestige for Sinn Féin. The food shortage increased agrarian tension. Change only occurs in Ireland because of agrarian crises. Charles Parnell and the IPP were able to utilize the 1880 land wars in their own rise to prominence, and Sinn Féin would do the same in 1917. What was happening was that landlords got more money if they rented land to grazers as opposed to farmers who needed the land to plant and harvest crops. Sinn Féin tried to divvy up the land and set prices the landlords could charge. When the landlords, When the landowners refused... They led mass occupation of the farmer's land and sometimes that would lead to confrontations with the royal Irish constables. Shin... Féin also introduced the use of boycotting. They tried to boycott some of the farmers who were using the land, but really boycotting was most powerful was used against the police themselves. So the, the IRC, the Royal Irish Constable. Um, the IRC was made up of Irishmen who were serving the British as police officers. And so the, um, what Sinn Féin did is that don't associate with the Irishmen who are serving as police officers, don't walk in the same street as they're walking, don't feed them, don't give them supplies, things like that. This was taken up with by the, uh, the female members of Sinn Féin and Tom Nabon and even the Irish volunteers. And it makes life harder for the, the IRC, um, especially when the boycott then extends to those who even help the IRC or who know the IRC. It doesn't really drive down recruitment, but what it does is that it introduces this idea that there is a certain segment of the population that is less than Irish or, you know should be punished for participating in a system that is anti-irish or you know anti-independence and it starts to introduce this idea that policemen aren't human and that it's okay to isolate them it's okay to be violent against them and this is a, maybe one of the most important developments during this period because it eases people into thinking that we can ostracize a portion of the population and if need be you know eventually that can lead to violence against the, that portion of the population while the food shortage was a crisis crazy- crisis. Sinn Féin's moment to shine was with the conscription crisis. So what happened was that end of 1916, early 1917, you know, World War One is still going on and no one knows when it's going to end. And the British are looking at a, a, man sh- a manpower shortage and they need to find men from somewhere. So in 1918. They introduce um, the conscription bill into Ireland, and they say they're doing forced conscription. This is a shot in the arm for Sinn Féin and the Irish Volunteers, who are already like gaining popularity and power. But this really accelerates the the rebirth of Sinn Féin and the death of the IPP, because of course the IPP has to be par- against it, right? They can't support conscription, especially forced conscription. And actually, Redmond dies in March 1918. They've also lost a very powerful leader, and he's replaced by John Dillon. But IPP is really, really struggling, and um, Sinn Féin nipping at its heels. What's fascinating is that the transcription bill unites Ireland maybe for the first and last time, because Sinn Féin, IPP, Tom the Bond, Irish volunteers, they're against it, and that's not gonna be obvious, but the, uh, the Catholic Church is also against it, the unions are against it, they think that it is against their rights, they think that, um, you know, like De Valera makes this argument that the sacrifice of those who have already gone to fight for Britain, you know, is an honorable sacrifice, but Britain is at fault for taking, you know, the best that Ireland had and wasting their lives. And they're very careful to be sure, to make sure that it's not the prior sacrifices that they have a problem with. It's just this idea that they can be enlisted and conscripted into war that they didn't want and it's an imperial war for an imperial master that they're trying to free themselves for. And they do try to uh, to catch the, the attention of the Americans. Um, De Valeris and Tom Nabon send a statement to Woodrow Wilson asking him to recognize Irish sovereignty and explaining to him that conscription infringes upon their their civil liberties and that their revolution is similar to the American cause during the American Revolution. The volunteers plan multiple actions as well they're not trying to get again it's this balance of we're not quite ready for an uprising so we don't want to force a confrontation but we can't step back either and allow people to be conscripted so they are increasing their drilling they're increasing their presence basically um and like i said earlier they're using the conscription bill as an excuse to gather weapons within their local community, so that way there's kind of this argument: you know, if we have the weapons, we can defend you from the British. Whereas if the weapons are just scattered throughout the village, it's you on its you against police officers. The boycott increases at this at this time to the point where officers um, feel trapped within their barracks, especially in places like North Tipperary. And women, again, women are the are leading the charge when it comes to implementing uh, boycotting and and resisting conscription. Since Sinn Fein and the Irish Volunteers <laughs> are using the transcription bill to drive, you know, attention to themselves and to stand up for, to represent the Irish people, they suddenly see an increase in uh, volunteers. And for Sinn Féin, that's not as much of an issue as it is for the Irish volunteers. Because as I said earlier, they're still in this forming phase where, you know, general headquarters is trying to balance whatever the hell the local (laughs) units are doing. It's trying to get an idea of what is going on there. And now that you suddenly have this influx of people who are swarming these units. And so general headquarters tries to send out orders to help make this process easier. And so um, some of the orders are, yeah, they're trying to issue orders on how men should be recruited, you know, what what's the vetting process they have to go through. And then things that also make this complicated is that the Irish volunteers units, they're voting for their own leaders. So as you can imagine, this can cause a disaster <laughs> depending on who's being voted to lead a unit headquarters tries to control this by saying well they have to be IRB men first and sometimes that works sometimes it doesn't sometimes there are some units who were either created by IRB men already or men who are willing to swear to be IRB men or Irish volunteers who are willing to work with IRB men it doesn't really phase them in other units the Irish volunteer people you know outnumber the IRB men or the IRB are just not as active or engaged with those units so it's like a mi- mixed success, but what you're seeing is that you're, you're seeing a headquarters that's trying to handle its sprawling army that is growing up underneath its own feet, which again, it echoes issues that the IRA will have in the 1919s, 1920s, and then in the Irish Civil War. The other thing too that was happening at this point is because you have this intense boycott, RIC, because you have this intense hatred for conscription and the war, and because you have a very belligerent England who from the Irish perspective is willing to sacrifice sacrifice the best that Ireland has for British interests, right? This is a little different from Britain sending soldiers into Ireland to quell a rebellion. Right now, what the Irish, what the conscription does is that it targets everyday Irishmen and it's taking them from their homes and forcing them to fight somewhere else. So what you do see is that you do see an increased radicalization of the Irish population at this time. And that's reflected in their politics. And then again, that's why you see the swarm of uh, volunteers for the Irish volunteers and Sinn Féin. It can be seen in the 1918 election, which we will talk about a little bit later in this episode.
1: So, the uh, conscription crisis goes on until about mid May 1918 when the British finally back down and they, uh, they take back the conscription bill. But while they do that, they also arrest uh, 73 nationalist leaders um, between May 17th and May 18th under the Defense of the Realm Act. And this includes um, Eamon Davaria, Constance Markovich, um, Arthur Griffith, and um, William Cosgrave, amongst others. Um, they did not arrest, however, men like Michael Cullen, Richard Mulcahy. Um and Harry Boland and I think Taffelberger, I think he escapes on um, arrest and the British excuse is that they are part of a German plot. They are working with the German government to overthrow the British government, and um, Britain is hoping that people remember that the leaders of Easter Rising also worked with the German um, government um in their uprising and also um echo the um, seventeen ninety eight uprising when Wolf Tone went to France and asked you know Napoleon for assistance. But this time it doesn't work. This time it becomes very clear um, how flimsy the excuse is, that there is no evidence or information, and it ends up backfiring. It undermines the government's uh, credibility in Ireland, especially since it happened in the midst of the food shortage, of the conscription crisis, and there's an election that's coming up at the end of the year. So people realize that it's more of an attempt to cripple Sinn Fein than uh, to protect the realm, or at least protect the realm from a radical party that. Um, is arguing that a portion of the empire should break away right and like, just that does kind of fit in defending the realm. Um, but the Irish people are just, they're not buying it. It does momentarily, I think, hurt Sinn Féin because seventy three people are arrested. And the other thing that it does, I think it increases the radicalization of Sinn Féin and then also Ireland. Because like I said, Collins and Mulcahy and, and uh, Bolin, they're free. They manage to avoid being arrested and they are the more uh, militant members of Sinn Féin and the Irish volunteers. And then as Constance Markovich says, you know, sending you to jail is like pulling out all the loud stops on all the speeches you've ever made. Our arrests carry so much further than speeches. But it makes Sinn Feng I mean, more of a radical party. And it also, I mean it a lot of prestige, right? Because they didn't. England didn't go after the IPP. I'm not sure. they I think Charles Parnell is arrested towards the end of his life. The IPP party, I think, itself has never actually been mass arrested, like Sinn Fein has. So Britain didn't really think that went through. And I think one of the reasons is that they just they're just really bad at reading Ireland and understanding what's going on in Ireland. um And I think they misunderstood Sinn Fein. They really thought that Sinn Fein was a fringe radical group that sounded loud but really didn't have any national support. And if they had moved swiftly and quickly could undercut, it becomes clear at this point that is it's too late for that kind of action. Xi um, Jinping has become very rooted within the Irish consciousness and the Irish political system that you can't just
0: cut off its head so easily. This leads us to the 1918 election, which may be one of the most important elections in a modern Irish history because it sets the stage for like the next 10 years, I feel, I feel like, in Irish history. The 1918 election was held on, in, on December 14th, 1918, and there are two things that make it well there's three things actually that make it so famous the first one is that it occurs after the representation of the people act is passed in parliament and so this act says that if you're a woman over the age of 30 and if you're a working class man over the age of 21 you could finally vote and so what this does is does two things one it allows women to run for election so i mentioned this in my women of easter risings podcast but constance markievich and winifred carney both run for election in ireland um and constance wins women and working class people could vote um and what this does is that this triples the number of people who can vote in ireland from 700,000 in 1910 to 1.93 million in 1918. um so not only is it a bigger number of people but you have a more diverse demographic the second thing that makes it so famous is that um sinn fein wins like a landslide victory it is the most powerful party it wipes out the ipp the ipp have six seats the unionists took 26 seats And Sinn Féin won 73 seats. And they win. They win because of the the first-past-the-post voting system. And then the third reason why it's the most famous is because this election leads the creation of the Dale, the first Dale in Ireland. And we'll talk about that um, in the next episode. But how did Sinn Féin go from a very small political party that was connected with, you know, a failed revolution um, and, you know, was associated with a militant side of the party, the Irish Volunteers, to the biggest powerhouse? in irish politics there are about three different reasons or three different explanations that historians seem to have come up with one again going back to the expanded electorate the people hardest hit by the first world war i think are um women and working class men the hardest the people hardest hit by easter rising i think again are women and working class men the 1918 election it wasn't an election of irish nationalism as much as it was an election of anti-british government anti-war anti-conscription a protest against the horror of the last four years, a protest against what happened in Easter Rising, a protest against anything that was established. It was as much of a, you know, it's a protest vote is really what it is. It's protest election. And I think it's one of the reasons why you see Sinn Féin have such a huge victory. The other thing too about Sinn Féin is that you had Khamnabon who had female members who were campaigning very hard for Sinn Féin. You had Irish volunteers who were campaigning very hard for Sinn Féin. They seemed more connected with the people. They were involved with the food shortage protests. They were involved with the anti-conscription movements. They just seem more in touch with what's going on in Ireland. The other thing too that helped Sinn Féin is that Labour at this time had a really hard time in the elections and then the IPP too. What did the IPP have to show? They had a failed home rule bill. Their leader died earlier that year. They didn't stop Easter Rising, right? They, they just let that happen. And they have this reputation now of being associated with Britain. And also don't forget that after home rule passed, Redmond went around the country asking Irishmen to vote, not to vote, to um to volunteer to fight in the war um because he believed that if irishmen went to fight britain would be more favorable to ireland and that didn't happen and that's not all redmond's fault right easter rising didn't help either but they're just a party of broken promises that's one reason um the other reason is that because of the conscription bill sinn fein um becomes close with the clergy a lot of members of the clergy in the catholic church are anti-conscription and they're very vocally anti-conscription and they are more supportive of sinn fein and people like de valera worked really hard to to cultivate the Catholic support. It's not like 100% support, it's probably 50-50 like 60-40 50, 50, maybe, but the fact that the clergy is on the same side as Sinn Féin on at least one issue, um, I think caught a lot of people's attention, especially in of country like Ireland when Catholicism is so important, as much as a religion as is, is a mark of national identity. And then the third reason is election reading and uh, intimidation. Harry Boland was in charge of brokering the allocation of seats and he ran a very tight ship and he worked really, really hard to ensure that they ran the best people in the best elections in a way that wouldn't hurt their alliances um, and wouldn't hurt you know, Sinn Féin itself. Um, and there was also intimidation at the polls. There seems to have been some elections that were tipped one way or the other illegally for a Sinn Féin um, member. Um, but what does the election mean, you know, for Ireland going forward? What it means is that the semi-militant independence party has the most seats and it means that ireland at the very least will support a radical party that is arguing for the separation of ireland from the british empire um once Sinn Féin achieved power they would be like the ipp they would you know fall into line they would follow protocol they would become involved in the parliamentary process so britain was already not feeling great about ireland Um, And so when Sinn Féin wins the election, people in in Britain thought either they were a radical fringe group that You know, wasn't going to win or they were a group that was going to fall in line and become part evolved in parliamentary politics like the IPP did. Um, They thought that a stable salary and the prestige of sitting in parliament would draw them to behaving. That did not happen at all. I think 27 members of Sinn Féin come together and they create the first dale which is the Irish parliament and in their eyes the only legitimate government in Ireland and so what this does as um, Ronan Fanning pointed out in his book The Fatal Path is this creates a massive vacuum within british parliament because the IPP only has six seats and the unionists have i think 20 seats, so the unionists are the strongest voice within british parliament but ireland now has its own parliament and in theory its own government so you have a dual government going on in ireland right now and um we will talk about the dale the first dale and what that means um in the next episode so what does the period between 1917 and 1918 actually mean for ireland and the anglo-irish war it means that despite the failure that Easter Rising was, it did not destroy Irish nationalism or the Irish desire to be independent. In fact, it seemed to have only inflamed it. And it seemed to have provided a structure needed to take Pierce's dream and bring it one step closer to reality. Two of the biggest groups that benefited from the imprisonment, at least, of the survivors of Easter Rising and then the subsequent release was Sinn Féin and the Irish Volunteers slash IRB. As we saw, Sinn Féin was able to take a fringe party with this weird idea of parliamentary absenteeism through intense, grassroots. Networking, grassroots campaigning. Um, they turned themselves into a, you know, not only a legitimate threat to an established political party, but the political party, the political power of Ireland within, you know, two years, by the end of 1918. And then they were able to take that one step further and create this, you know, shadow government, which we'll talk about in that episode. And that is an amazing accomplishment. It really comes from this idea of, I think it's a combination of things. I think it's a combination of World War One and this conflict for independence from one of the allies countries right because one you fought germany and you fought austria and you fought the ottomans because they were despots they were tyrants they were going to destroy civilization oh you know look how terribly they treated you know germany treated the belgians and i think at this point they know a little bit about what was happening with the armenians and so, you know, they're just terrible, terrible nations. They don't have any right for empire or anything like that. They're not civilized, right? And you did a lot of this propaganda during mean, World War I about like, the Hun and things like that. But then you look at Britain and you, lo- you look you at Ireland, which is a neighbor of Britain. And, you know, they are British citizens. They are part of the UK. And they are trying so dang hard to just escape from England. I really do think that it creates this uncomfortable dissonance. In the propaganda and the narrative that France and Britain and then later America is going to try and build around the Allies, and I think the Irish too—they they sense this dissonance. They sense this idea of Britain's need to fight for the liberation of Belgium, but not their own people. And um you know, Britain's going to come in and they're going to bomb our city, and they're going to send you know a good portion of our young men to jail because. The makeup of the Irish volunteers are young men and women. And then they're going to come and they're going to ask us to voluntarily, not even voluntarily, they're going come in and they force us to then go fight in their armies, while also taking food from us. Because the last time they took food from us, we had the Irish potato famine. And then they also blamed us for that as well, right? So it's just, I think there's just a lot of um, high emotions that come from the horror of what's going on in the front. And even though Ireland is not as hard to hit as many other nations during World War One. I think that in itself also increases Irish anger because it's not their war. It's not. And it's obviously a colonial war, right? I don't know if they were using that term at the time. I think you had people like H.G. Wells and a number of others who were calling it a colonial war, but I don't know how, um, how in vogue that term was during the time, but it's definitely not a war for liberation of all people. In 1918, Will Joe Wilson, the 14 points is the right for self-determination. Um, and so the Irish will jump on this term and they will pound the Americans with this term, um, in a desperate attempt to, uh, to get their support for Irish independence. I think there's a combination of things that are going on in ireland and in the world as a whole that sinn fein is able to capitalize on if these things were not happening i don't know if sinn fein would have survived or would have seen as huge a victory in the 1918 election as it did it's the same thing with the irish volunteers the irish the irish volunteers need to rebuild themselves as well. In some ways, they are worse off than Sinn Féin. But Sinn Féin, you know, was a political party that had its own political platform outside of Easter Rising. And the only reason Sinn Féin gets involved with the survivors of Easter Rising is because the damn British confused Sinn Féin, (laughs) the Irish Volunteers, and the IRB. So the British did that to themselves. But the Irish Volunteers, they were shattered um, by the failure of Easter Rising. And... They have to rebuild. And so, like I said earlier, there are two ways to do that. There are two approaches to that. One is local initiatives. And then the other is this creation of an officer corps and a general headquarters. And general headquarters is run mostly by IRB men. And you see that they try to insert their influence by trying to control the election of officers and how people are being recruited. But the the principle is still the same, though. It's still grassroots networking. It's still grassroots campaigning. It's still grassroots recruiting and they are not as involved in um officially at least they're not as involved in the food shortage the conscription crisis because they don't want a confrontation yet with british forces but on the local level you know individual units and individual groups are involved and they are participating and it gets kind of complicated because you have a lot a lot of cross-pollinization between the more militant members of Sinn fein and the irish volunteers like collins is a member of both richard mulkay is a member of both they both run for election um, De Valera is a member, is a member of both. Broda is a member of both. Ash is a member of both. So on and so on and so on. That's another thing too that I think strengthens both movements is that they're able to, in a way, unite and support each other and work together while also having very different, um, approaches or thing that should be taken away from 1917 1918 is that we start to see this development of tactics that will be used in the anglo irish war and one of the most important tactics to be developed during this period is the hunter strike tom ash may be one of the most famous people to go on a hunter strike and his death wasn't only like a, a political or propaganda victory it um becomes a model that future ira members can use when they need to carry the fight from the front line into the jail and you can even trace that type of thinking further back to um when they were arrested in 1916 because what do what do collins and what do de valera do when they go into um Frondage and Dartmouth? well they organize they organize the troops, they elect a spokes leader or spokesman, and um, they start protesting against their conditions. And I think I mentioned earlier, de Valera at one point does threaten to do a Hunter Strike. And Hunter Strike is not a new thing in Ireland. You had a number of suffragettes like Hannah Sheehy Steffington, I think Kathleen Clark, um, a number of others who also threatened to go on Hunter Strike earlier in like 1912. So this is not a new thing in Ireland, but becomes, I think this is the first time, at least in the context of the Irish Volunteers and Sinn Féin, Where they purposely use it as a tool against british government and um there's actually an inquest into his death and the british do not they they come out of that trial not looking good at all it's very clear that they they botched the force feeding and then like i mentioned earlier you see this struggle between general headquarters trying to control the local units trying to just understand what general headquarters is all about and you do see some of the tension between the more the less violent people and the more violent people so i think um, what we can take away from this in terms of the Anglo-Irish War is that it is clearing the stage of some of these useless players like the IPP, and it is setting the stage for a major confrontation within Ireland. And because the British misread the situation so poorly, they are going to be caught off guard in 1919 and 1920 when the, um, the Anglo-Irish War officially begins. Um, that's it for today. Next episode, we will talk about the forming of the First Dale, and we we'll went go into more... Um, Um, a more in-depth discussion on the creation of the shadow government um and talk about things like the the dale courts and the different ministries and a little bit about the army structure um not too much into the army just yet. I want to talk about the political side of things first because war can be fought based on the political means and political will, and so we have to understand the political side of the IRA um, and the Irish struggle before we can delve into the military side. So that will be the next episode. Two. I hope you will come back, um, and I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, uh, you know, please check our website www.samswarroom.com for supplementary material like book reviews and additional articles and a transcript of this episode, please stay safe out there. Um, You know, wash your hands, do social distancing, and I will talk to you next time.